earlier this summer, I was talking with some friends about how far we'd come from the people we were 30 years ago. It was an enjoyable, freewheeling conversation, you know the kind, after a glass of wine or two, late in the evening, where everyone is laughing about some funny or spontaneously outrageous thing that one of us did, or sometime when one of us was particularly self-righteous and, to be candid, silly about something back then. It wasn't me, of course. Or times um, right after we launched our new liturgical calendar when we decided to go with fewer words, more action-driven celebrations here at West, and we created a solstice celebration where we had everyone in the darkened room, young and old, rising around on the floor with djembe drums a-pounding, imagining that they were the icy hard earth trying to break free from the grip of winter. <laughs> but that's for an, another platform, and you have a lot to be grateful for with <laughs> We told stories filled with hope and imagination and promise and playfulness when out of the blue, I had a memory of listening to a Bette Midler story. It comes from her depression, too, or maybe some of you have heard it. And it goes like this. She said, I was walking down 42nd Street one day. I wasn't working 42nd Street. I was walking 42nd Street. And this amazing thing happened to me. It was July, it was about 89 degrees, it was hot, hot, hot for New York. You know, as I was walking east, this humongous person was coming west, and she had a big, bright blue house dress on, peppered all over with little white daisies. She was almost bald, but sitting on top of her head, her forehead, you know, on her forehead was a fried egg. Which I thought was real unusual, because in New York City, the ladies with the fried eggs on their heads don't generally come out until September or October. And here was this lady with a little fried egg on her head in the middle of July. God, what a sight. And ever since I saw that, not one day goes by that I don't think of her, and I say to myself, oh, God, don't let me wake up tomorrow and want to put a fried egg on my head. Oh, God. Then I say real fast, I say, oh God, if by chance I should wind up with a fried egg on my head, because sometimes you can't help those things you know you can't, I say to myself, don't let anybody notice. <laughs> and then I say real fast after that, if you do notice, if they do notice that I'm carrying something that, that's not quite right and they want to talk about it, let them talk about it, but don't let them ask, talk so that I can hear it. I don't want to hear it. Because the truth about fried eggs is, you can call it a fried egg. You can call it anything you like. But everybody's got one. Some people wear them on the outside, and some people wear them on the inside. Some people wear them on the outside, and some people wear them on the inside. And for some reason, I just wanted to share that with you this morning as I reflected back on those fried egg moments. But the truth is that Bette Midler is right. We're all rocking those fried eggs, whether they're showing or not. It's the matter of being human 
And no matter the stuffy, business-like, techno-prisoner's demeanor some of us can put on, there is still egg dripping down our cheeks. <clears throat> this is our Community Sunday, a time to be reminded of why we're here. Over the years, I've heard so many stories of what brought you here, and seldom, after the telling a few times, are those stories as obvious as they may present themselves to be for the first time. Many are stories of transition, stories of loneliness, stories of disappointment and of starting over, and the stories are so personal, some so poignant and hopeful. The stories those new members tell a feeling as though by coming here, they've come home to themselves. But one thing I think these stories all have in common is this. We all want to realize our potential as human beings on this earth. We all want to be the best version of ourselves we can be. Tonight, as many of you know, begins the Jewish High Holy Days, which celebrate the ability of a human being to change and grow and to return again to that best version of ourselves. And in that, our, this, that, that religious tradition is coded, as you know, in ethical culture's DNA, we are reminded, too, that for each of us, there is a gap between our best potential selves and our actual current selves. And for those who are observant the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there's an opportunity for Jews to focus on narrowing that gap just a bit. At sundown tonight, Rosh Hashanah, the birthday of the world, will begin, and it will begin with the blowing of a shofar, a ram's horn, which is blown repeatedly to wake us up, wake us up from our slumber, to pierce our armor, that internal shield we put up to avoid hearing the call to our better self. And ten days from now, Jews will observe Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when they challenge themselves to consider what it would really take to live in a brand new world. And like all ancient festivals, Yom Kippur responds to deep human needs, needs that probably haven't changed since the beginning of time. Reconciliation and atonement at one moment is something we long for. We are all estranged from something, something that cuts us off from our own better self, something that cuts us off from others, sometimes our own communities. The central commitment of Yom Kippur is teshuva, a wonderful Hebrew world, world, word that literally means to return which means that returning to the true self you once knew yourself to be, or hope in time to be, that beautiful, mixed-up, heartbroken at times, radiant, fully human self. We live most of our days, says the poet May Sarton, in strained relationships with our past, not empowered by our experience, but rather hampered by old limitations, old visions we carry of ourselves. 
We need to remind ourselves, says the poet, that life begins anew each day, and the amazing gift of life is the daily rebirth of radical human freedom. The freedom to begin anew, to begin again, to define our lives anew, beginning here and starting now. For 30 days, Jews practice forgiveness, forgiveness of others and forgiveness of self. And this is really about transformation or the hope of transformation. There's nothing magical or supernatural about this. It's the kind of transformation that comes from choice by choice, by awkward and painful choice, to come face to face with the fact that though we have all come from difficult circumstances, certainly different circumstances early in our life, we are the way we are, testy, defensive, angry, underhanded, compassionate, or loving, in large part because we choose to be. As one of your leaders, I'm privileged to sit with people and hear their stories about their own fried eggs and secret longings. But what I also see over time, little by little, is this kind of awakening, this coming into our own voice, our own feeling that at last we are at home with ourselves. The tradition holds that if we are to come to Yom Kippur when the Book of Life is open, we can begin again, turn a new page in the Book of Life, but only if we have honestly looked first at all the ways we have forgotten who we really are. The question then becomes, will you begin again with this new day and with all of its possibilities stretched out before you, or will you continue exactly as before, dragging your baggage behind you. Here in ethical culture and in this community, you won't be hearing the blast of the shofar to wake us up to the next day. But every Sunday, we have something akin to that in our gathering. Sunday when we come here, we share that instinct for repair and to turn again and come round right. We find it in our coffee hours when we break away from the person we have known for years to welcome, truly welcome, a newcomer. We find it in our Sunday school when our children learn and act to embrace differences. We find it when a person in our community is in need and we drop everything to be there for them. We find it in our deepening circles where people bring their whole selves to the table, deeply listening to each other's truths. We find it when someone says hello, and in their face and voice and eyes, you know that they actually see you. We find it as we bring new direction and voice to our social justice commitments, and we will find it as we struggle together through the core courses of flourish, trying to make goodness in our lives and in the lives of others well. Flourish. We find it here and everywhere whenever we let our hearts be open to our full humanity. Not perfect, but flawed, and yet wonderful. 
Not too long ago, I happened across an NPR interview with a man named Ray Oldenburg, a sociologist from Florida who wrote The Great Good Place. Have any of you read him? He's kind of a buddy of the bowling alone guy. And they're talking about the same things, essentially. He spoke of how critically important third places are in our lives, those places in the community that are neither home, which is our first place, or work, our second place. The third place, though, is the one you seek out. It doesn't have the same kind of givens as the family first place or the same kind of obligations as does your workplace second place. But it can be a very important place on its own. And it can come to foster a high level of loyalty and commitment. The third place is where you go when you're looking for some greater dimension of meaning in your life. Where you go for a greater sense of engagement. Where you find a wider range of human contact than in your first and second places. Where you find a greater sense of welcome. It's not a a new concept. Oldenburg was talking about this back in 1990. He describes these as places to make friends, where they accept you for who you are and where everybody knows your name, and most importantly, welcomes newcomers as part of the mix all the time. There are regulars, and anyone can become one. They are a home away from home. Oldenburg, it turns out, was not speaking about religious communities. He was actually talking about bars like Cheers, (laughs) where everybody knows your name, or the barber shop, or the beauty shop, or the old-fashioned soda fountain. He really laments the loss of that. Or, Or the general store. And cleverly, you know, Starbucks turned that concept into an advertising campaign, somehow trying to convince us that by sitting at their little table, sipping half-cafe, venti, extra-dry, two-pump caramel macchiatas, and availing ourselves of the free Wi-Fi, we would somehow find that great, good place. He worried, like so many culture watchers, that so few of those traditional third places still existed and the impact it was having on a culture of anxiety and loneliness. But when I look around at the hustle and bustle of our committees and classes, where it is impossible to find an open room here on any night of the week, I see that this, too, is a third place. Here we find people of all ages working alongside each other on celebrations and other projects, Here we have children who can see that generations of people care about them. Here we come together in our small groups to find encouragement, to come up with our own answers to life's deepest questions. Here we can dedicate and ceremonially name our babies, cheer on our maturing teenagers, and applaud the fine young adults they've become. You're not going to find what is offered here at a Starbucks, a bowling alley, or even at that glorious fountain on hot summer days in Silver Spring, though that might come close. I've been reading a lot lately to prepare for the Flourish classes I'm leading with seven other members who've been working on this with me this year. And that reading has brought me once again to Parker Palmer, a Quaker teacher, and the author who writes in his book, a hidden wholeness about how we live so much 
of our lives with our very selves divided. He talks about the outer self, the onstage, smiling self that goes out to greet the world each day, glad-handing the crowd, holding a competent job, holding it together, often with great skill and apparent ease, the self that is concerned and needs to be with image, influence, and impact. It is our face to the world. And he talks about the inward self, the backstage self, the part of you that lives its life not in accomplishment, but in intuition, insight, feeling, values, and longing. Palmer explains that the relationship between our inner and outer lives change over the course of our living. When we're babies, there's no separation at all between our inner and outer lives, and that's why most of us love to be around infants and young children. What we see is what we get. But then as we grow, we begin to build a protective wall between our inner truth and our outer personality. Some of us earlier than others, some with more urgent necessity, we begin not to trust the voice within us as readily as the distractions without. We trust approval and disapproval more than our own hearts, and we learn to protect ourselves, to protect that vulnerable inward self by hiding it or pretending that it isn't there. And throughout our lives, we continue to reinforce that inner intuitive self every year, every day, as we respond as best we know to disapproval or exclusion, or that eventually that wall will have been so carefully reinforcing between our inner and outer lives, it will come down, but only when the pain of living a divided life becomes too much. I think of a friend of mine when I worked on the Hill, a brilliant, funny lawyer desperately in love with a man, but who came out publicly only only after waiting 15 years of his adult life until his mother died for fear of his mother's disapproval. We all have stories like that. That wall can become like a gated community where only those who are exactly like us and with whom we feel at ease are welcome. And here is where we get fundamentalism and rigidity. Here's where that can kick in as we begin to separate the good guys, the bad guys, in our minds along racial or religious or ethnic lines. But in the inner, the inner self is still there. And at some point, we may enter that third phase. We want our inner truth to illuminate our relationships, our work, our actions. We want to be centered. And here's when we begin to define our values and beliefs more clearly so we know who we are and where we stand. And we may gather around us people of like heart and mind, a community such as this, a third place. Provided we're still open, we move to the fourth and final stage of the integrated self. Parker Palmer demonstrates this using a Mobius strip. And I want you, I will use this to demonstrate. It's kind of low-tech, I know. You take a strip of paper like this, and one side of it represents your inner self, the other 
your outer self. Palmer says that when we reach the fourth and final stage, our inner life and our outer life is integrated. So if you take the strip of paper and you pull the two sides slightly apart, giving one end a half twist and then rejoining the two ends, what you have, I hope this is what you have, I believe it, I want to believe it fervently. <laughs> Maybe I haven't reached that fourth stage. Probably not, in fact. What have I done? Oh, wait, gotta make my circle. Gotta make my circle. Hold on, hold on. I know I can do this. <laughs> I love you guys. <laughs> I just want you to know I practice this. <laughs> okay, the concept is better than the demonstration. So you hold it together and you trace what seems to be the outside of that strip and suddenly and seamlessly you find yourself on the inside of the strip and continue to trace that what seems to be the inside suddenly and seamlessly turns out to be the outside and the two sides keep co-creating themselves. Just imagine this in your mind. <laughs> and in this constant interchange between the inner and outer lives, our lives are made and remade. Palmer says the reality is that we live on this Mobius strip all the time and there really is no place to hide. The more we're in this community and create safe space for each of us to give voice to our inner self, the stronger we will be as a fruitful force in the world. We have only one choice, says Parker. Either we walk the Mobius strip wide awake to its continual interchanges learning to co-create in ways that are life-giving for ourselves and others, or we sleepwalk on the Mobius Strip, unconsciously co-creating ways that are dangerous and often death-dealing to relationships, to good work, and to hope. What kind of spaces, Palmer wondered, would give us the best chance to reach the fourth level of integration? It would be a space, he said, defined by principles and practices that honor each and every person. Too often in community and even in liberal religious congregations, he said, we meet and assert and argue and claim and proclaim, admonish and advise, and generally behave in ways that drive everything original and wild into hiding. And when that happens, the community and its life force shrivel. It is in creating and cultivating communities that are primarily about understanding one another, speaking to the good in the other, eliciting the best in one another that, in my view, has the best chance, maybe the only chance, of saving humanity from all the forces that would separate us. It is only by cultivating these communities that we have a chance. And this isn't easy. 
how we speak to one another in our meetings, how we deal together when we disagree, how we approach or avoid conflict, how we behave in the face of meanness or manipulation or anger, how vulnerable we will allow ourselves to be, how open we are to challenging the secret little pocket of smugness or superiority we carry inside us. All of these things matter. Here we practice together being the changes we want to make in the world, and that can mean struggling through some times of discomfort. People who have met some genuine demanding challenges in the world are always connected in a way that people who have merely had a pleasant time together can never have. And most often, this will happen in religious communities when the well-being of the institution is somehow at risk. Genuine community such as this one does not grow out of our being comfortable together or working to make people happy all the time. Maybe you've noticed that. No matter how we as members multiply our efforts, there will always be someone who didn't feel quite as warmly welcomed as they might have, or quite as attentively heard as they might have, or quite as caringly responded to as they might have. But even if we could achieve total bliss in our community, the very effort would trivialize what we're all about. Some congregations, when faced with discomfort, start reining in their hopes and dreams, dampening down and building boundaries around everything that may seem different from, them, from the norm, even if that norm is only a day old. And yet, we all learn, yearn, to belong. The thing is, is that we will never find, none of us, that warm feeling of community by going directly for it, as it is not one more consumer pr product that we can nail. Community is only found when we collectively encounter challenges that we do not know we can meet together. Those kinds of encounters are not always comfortable by definition because it is always painful to be pushed beyond the limits of our security. But that is how we grow, both as individuals and as a community. There's one other reason why people come here, through, though they may not say it in so many years, so many words, but I hear it. So think back to that Mobius strip representing the integration that comes when our inner world and our outer world reflect each other when they are integrated. I think that people choose this community as their third place after home and work because we want our lives to be congruent. We want our lives to bring our anti-racist work and our welcoming congregation work and our artistry and our reason and our passion and our logic and our joy into harmony so that we need not contradict one face of our living with what we affirm in the other. We want lives that do not keep our brains in one compartment and our feelings in another or our values we talk about to be separate from the way we behave. We want lives that we cannot consider wasted when they come to their inevitable end. We want to be admired and loved. But more than that, we want to be people who are admirable 
and worthy of love, don't we? We come here because what we can do alone is different from what we can achieve and we're surrounded by people who are pursuing deliberately and effectively the kinds of lives to which we aspire for ourselves. And for most of us, this is not the first step that we are taking on that path, that, on the path that leads towards lives of integrity and service. It is more likely to be the hundredth and first or the thousandth and first on a journey that has been ours for a long time. So when all is said and done, what sustains this institution is not our operating fund, important though it is. It is not the devoted staff, nor the dedicated board, nor Amanda, or me. It isn't the building. It isn't our history or the ideals we put forward here. What connects us and makes us into a community is the dedication and partnership we have to making the lives we might live become ever more nearly the lives we do live, and the world of our vision become increasingly a world made real. I'm so glad we're on this journey together, Fridays and all. <laughs>